Christ is risen. risen Thought I would before we uh, begin give you a little bit of uh, a a little review of where I was last week and um, what what I had seen. Uh, So I was in Tacoma, Washington, which is just south of uh, Seattle. at Parkland Lutheran Church, so the ELS Church, that's where the conference was held, it's called the Emmaus Conference. Um, they've given me, for, for speaking at this uh, a print, or a, a signed print of this, that they had commissioned just for this conference. So it has Jesus' disciples on the road to Emmaus on Easter, but set in the Pacific Northwest, where you get to the mountain and the, and the forest there, as they're walking through the forest, so it sets uh, the Emmaus, the Easter story there on that. We had to pick which one, but there are three of them, so I picked number there was 23, 24, and 25 out of 100. Uh, so I picked 20, 20, 23 since it's, that's the year, that'll help me remember when that was. <laughs> um, but anyway, so a couple of things, so just my observations from, from the weekend. Um, one, it was just a neat opportunity to go to another part of the country and to see that the history of their, um, the churches out there, um, and I guess I didn't realize how how much history there is out, out there with the, the ELS. Um, the church there that they have um, was actually, the building was actually originally a military chapel that they secured somehow uh, and and then have renovated since then. Um, really interesting, the architecture, so it's an old chapel. I don't know when it was when it was originally built, maybe in the 20s or something like that. Um, but then the, the front part of it had been redesigned, like this altar and the, the furniture up here um, was an architect in the 1970s had renovated the, the space, and then just in the last few years, they added the, the crucifix, this cross, used to be attached onto the altar. It was kind of an interesting design, and then they had another designer on the back that they sort of simplified it. Uh, but, so this Parkland Lutheran, they just blocks from there is a university, Pacific Lutheran University, uh, which originally was, a, it was an institution of the Norwegian Synod. Uh, they have started the, the schools like Luther College in um, Iowa, uh, the number of institutions. But then when the, the mer- big merger of the Norwegians, the, they wanted to merge into a, a, a big church, all the Norwegian Lutherans, and they, what now is the ELS said, no, we can't do that because we're not in agreement. Um, so they broke off and that's what started the ELS. But then they lost this university. So it says 1890, founded in 1890. But that's those who broke away from that. Now that used to be theirs, um, and so that's really a, a strong part of their history. But the interesting thing is they, they went out to that area and in to start schools, um, including this one um, today, just you know blocks from here. This is the you know the old was called old main where everything was until you know I don't know until they started building other buildings on campus. Uh, blocks from here is Parkland, uh, and they have a church and school K to eight school there. Which interestingly now is busting at the seams 
with refugees from the, the government schools, but also you know, from some of the same ideas that are being taught in universities like this, have made their way into the government schools, and so now everyone's they're leaving, the, they're fleeing the government schools in order to uh, find a place where that stuff isn't being taught. And the, the principal is talking about how you know they get these phone calls about, you know, are you, you know, are you in person having in person classes, or are you, you know, all, all these things? Are you teaching this in your school? Or are you teaching this in your school? Uh, at people who are, are fleeing things that are being taught in the other schools. Uh, and interesting, I got to sit in on some of the classes on Monday morning uh, where the pastor was teaching hymnology and I went to, to, to all the, the classes. It's really, really fascinating. Uh, yeah. I, before I move on to devotion sheet for the week, anything, any questions or. All right, so under the sheet for the week, well, we have a second petition. Thy kingdom come. What does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit, so that by His grace we believe His Holy Word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. You'll hear, you'll hear Jesus in the Gospel for today making a promise that I think is fulfilled in this. And He's going to send His Holy Spirit. Uh, you'll hear that in the gospel for today. You also hear this quote in the sermon. Uh, the hymn of the week uh, is Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. We're going to be singing that in church. And so I'm not going to go through all ten stances of that. Now we'll, we'll actually, the sermon, we'll be looking at and talking about this, this hymn anyway. But I want to tell you a little bit of background. So, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. With exaltation springing and with united heart and voice. Um, ten stanzas. Was, was one of the first Lutheran hymns, so it's a Lutheran hymn, first of all. 1524 is when the first Lutheran hymn book, it's a book of eight hymns, uh, and, and this hymn is one of them. Uh, 15, that's 1524. It probably appeared a little bit earlier, even at the end of 1523. What's very interesting is that before this, there was, these kind of hymns did not exist. There were hymns, but Luther did something different, and it seems to be where this idea comes from for him was an event that happened in the middle of 1523. So again, this comes out 1524, July 1st, I believe, of 1523. These two guys in the Netherlands are executed. Um, Johann Esch, Jan von Essen, and um, Heinrich, is the German form, uh, Henry, uh, Vos are burned at the stake in uh, Brussels. They were monks, and all of the monks in there in Antwerp, all of the monks in there in 1522, the monks in this, in this monastery professed Lutheran doctrine. They had heard the preaching, the Lutheran preaching, up in the Netherlands, and uh, and uh, or we should say down in the Netherlands, even though it's north, but it's down, it's towards the sea, right, lower elevation, but north. Uh, and they, they heard the preaching, they, they 
They said, yeah, this is true. We believe this. All of the, the monks in this monastery. Well, they, the, 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 the Catholic Church officials find out about this, and they send this, uh, the, the, an investigator to come and threatens them, and, they, and then, you know, to get them to recant. And when they realize that they might die if they continue to, to hold this, all of the other monks in that monastery, except three, recant what they had confessed. These two, and then a third. Um, as they're being pressed, and they're, they're accused, and their execution is ordered, the third one asks, can, can you just give me a day to, to consider it? Uh, and so he doesn't ex- get executed that day, because he said, can I have more time? Uh, and so they execute these two. Um, the third one, he never recants, um, but by the time... He, he got out of dying, I think. He just was imprisoned um, after that. Uh, but these two then, then Luther, so think about this time-wise. He has to get word about, like, how does the news about this come from the Netherlands down to Germany? It's going to be traveled on foot or on horseback. The news reaches Luther, and he hears about this. And then what Luther does in response to this is he writes a hymn. Uh, the hymn is... Um, a new song we have now begun is one way that it gets translated. I don't think it was in the old Lutheran hymnal. I don't think it was. But it's basically a story about this. So Luther writes this ballad. It's in a ballad form. Uh, he writes a ballad. It's a story song about these two young men dying um, for, for confessing the faith. And he goes through this stanza after stanza. Same melody like we have, we'd be used to in a hymn. But stanza by stanza, he tells the story. Um, just like you'd, you'd expect a, a minstrel to come around singing the news and telling a story about you know, a king's exploits or something like that. But instead, the story is about these two young Lutherans who were executed for, for professing this doctrine. And in the hymn, Luther goes and, he, and he, he, he explains why did they really die? Like it wasn't for Luther's doctrine. It was for the Christian faith and for the professing this. And, um, and, and it seems to be that Luther kind of like a light bulb comes on when he writes this hymn. He's like, oh, oh, we could do this <laughs> with, with hymns. And this hymn, uh, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice, is very much like that other one that tells the story about the two, you know, except this one is the whole story of salvation. You watch it as we're singing it today. And it covers the whole deal from beginning to end. So imagine, as you're singing it, imagine a, a minstrel singing it in a local tavern to sing, <laughs> the, uh, to, like singing the news of what's been done. Dear Christians, one and all rejoice with exaltation springing. That's where that comes from. Um, so it's very early. So in that half a year, somewhere he, he hears about it, writes this other hymn, and then decides to write this hymn in that same amount of time. Um, by the next year, they published that first little eight-song eight book, which includes this one and the other, the, that other ballad. And also, Salvation Unto Us Has Come. Some of our, our uh, uh, best hymns were in that. Okay. Should we do some church history? We are going to have to say amen uh, 945 uh, so that choir and kids can sing and practice upstairs. So you'll have to help me. Uh, watch the clock. Uh, we are we're on the last sheet. This section is the last section we'll do in this 
time frame from zero to 250. Um, so I'm going to shut this off because I don't have any slides for this section. Everything's on the sheet. I don't think we'll finish this today, which is be all right. We've got, I think, three Sundays here before we break for the summer. So, uh, so looking on the sheet, what we're doing now is looking at uh, overview of the teachings and the ideas uh, that were going around the tradition of the early church. So, keep in mind that at this point in time, the scriptures, they did not have Bibles assembled into a book as we do. Uh, we, they don't, they, there are writings. There are certainly the, the Hebrew Old Testament, the scriptures. And then there are now the letters of Paul to the churches. And you have the Gospels have been written. But they haven't all been like, you can't buy a Bible. That, that doesn't really exist at this point as a as a total as in one volume the whole scriptures okay so how do in the church like what are the churches based on well they're started by the apostles initially right and they're traveling like paul going to the cities and then founding the church in corinth and the church in ephesus right and they're gathering these people and he teaches them right as the church goes on then there's the struggle about what how do we know what is the true teaching? Especially if other ideas come about. So, look first at this first quote. Um, this is going to help us realize what this term tradition is. We use this all kinds of ways. But we understand how, what it literally means here. So, this is Irenaeus. We've talked about him. He says, I recall the events of those years... Better than those of recent time. Any of you can relate. Some of you might relate to that. Like, you can remember way back, um, but what I had for breakfast, I have no idea. So that I can recall the very place where the blessed Polycarp sat and discoursed. His goings in and out. The character of his life and appearance. The lessons he gave to the public. So remember that? Irenaeus was a disciple, and he was talking about, of Polycarp. Um, he used to. He, he can remember how he used to talk and the things that he talked about. He would tell of his conversation with John and others who knew the Lord. So Polycarp was a disciple of John, who was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, he would tell of his conversation with John and the others who knew the Lord. He would recite their words from memory. This is Polycarp would recite, or no, uh, yeah. Polycarp would recite John's words from memory, especially what they told him about the Lord. Polycarp repeated what he heard from these eyewitnesses about his words and works, always in accord with the scriptures. Now, when he refers to the scriptures, he's probably thinking primarily of the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, I used to listen very carefully, noting everything in my heart rather than on paper. Again and again, these memorized words go through my mind. Okay? So describing how they received uh, the, the word of God and the teaching was, it was, it was passed down. And, and you had, they had sort of a, a link back to the, to the words of Jesus himself. So he's remembering Polycarp talk about listening to John who talked about Jesus. And how did they retain this? They, you know, more than writing it down... 
they just they memorized it. They learned it by heart. So then the next one starts to talk about the, these, these things um, as they begin to be written down, but where they initially start. So also here's Irenaeus again. They, the disciples, first preached it abroad, and then later, by the will of God, handed it down to us in writings. I'm going to stop there for when he says handed it down to you, to us. That's the word tradition. Tradition, um, so it means to hand down. Um, we have an example of that in 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul's writing about the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians. And he says, what I received from the Lord, I passed on to you. And then he goes into our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed. He says, what I received from the Lord, I handed down to you. So we, we're, we're big fans in our day of people of making verbs out of things. So tradition is a noun. But if you wanted to make it into a verb, this would be the Apostle Paul saying, what I received, I traditioned Unto you. That's that's the origin of the word tradition. It actually comes from that verb to hand down. Okay, so we think when we use the word tradition, what are we thinking of? Actions in usually some custom that we have, right? Um, it's our tradition that on um, on Mother's Day after church we go out for brunch or something like that, or some other thing. At the end, usually they're family traditions. We can talk about church traditions and. And we understand that that activity that we do doesn't have to be done. It's our tradition, right? We, we kind of understand a, a distinction. We do it because that's what we've done in the past. But the, the root of that is something that's handed down. So in this case, there are tradition that they're talking about. It's not just things that they did, that their, you know, their fathers did and now they did. These were teachings that were traditioned. Okay? So sometimes when we talk about tradition... We, we want to distinguish between things that are just, you know, th- things that we do because someone else did them in the past. And when we talk about scriptural tradition, that is something that was handed down you know, from Jesus down to his apostles to us. So these aren't optional for us. The teaching of, of Jesus isn't optional for us. It has been handed down. It is a kind of tradition, right? The word of God that we receive, the word of God that we hear that is our tradition, because it's been handed down from Jesus to us, right? That's a different thing than it's our tradition to sit on the right side of the church, right? We understand the difference between those things, right? That we receive the word of God, that's, that's a weightier thing, and that's something that, that has, but has been handed down in the same way, right? But you've got it first, though, this tra- handing down happened. It says they first preached it abroad. So we sometimes talk about oral tradition, the things that were handed down by mouth. But then it says later on, they handed it down in writings. Which is useful because those, you know, those can survive longer and you can go back and check. What's handed down orally is useful. That's the way it it has been and happened. Very useful. What you heard from your mother, the things that you remember your father saying when when you were little or your stories your grandfather told, those are very valuable to you. Um, but what's really important with that? That needs to be continued to be done, or it will disappear. 
one way to help it not disappear is to, what do you always tell the old person who is telling lots of stories? You say, you should write that stuff down, right? Because <laughs> if you don't, you know, it, so they did that. Uh, what did they do? Uh, so they handed it down in writings to be the foundations and the pillar of our faith. For it is not right to say that they preached before they came to perfect knowledge, as some dare to say, boasting that they, were, they are correctors of the apostles. For after our Lord had risen from the dead, they were clothed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Pentecost. They were filled with all things and had perfect knowledge. So Matthew, among the Hebrews, issued a writing of the gospel in their own tongue, while Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome and founding the church. After their decease, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, also handed down to us in writing that Peter had preached. In Luke, the follower of Paul, a re- recorded, recorded in a book, the Gospel, as it was preached to him, by him. Finally, John, the disciple of, our, of the Lord, who had also lain on his breast, himself published the Gospel while he was residing at Ephesus in Asia. If anyone does not agree with these... He despises the companions of the Lord. So there's a Irenaeus referring to what we know as the four Gospels, the accounts of the apostles, writing down the words and the works of Jesus. Now in writing. And he's, he's making the point, don't think that these, these guys, you know, they were full of mistakes and, they, you know, and we have to correct them. He says, from, from Pentecost, they were able to receive the Holy Spirit to be able to write these things down accurately for us. Um, that we might have that. There were other gospel accounts. There were other accounts written of Jesus' life and death. But very quickly, these sort of rose to the top. Um, there were also some that were called gospels that, were, that had different, different things um, and that weren't consistent with the record as it was given. So then... Um, then here we have Tertullian writing. Um, also, so what if what if someone preaches uh, something different? What if someone does come out with another uh, another gospel that, that contradicts these things, or uh, something that contradicts what the Apostle Paul was was writing and preaching, say in Corinth or Ephesus or something like that? So Tertullian says. Come now, run through the apostolic churches where the chairs of the apostles still preside over their areas, where the authentic letters of the apostles are still read aloud. If Achaia is nearest to you, you have Corinth. If you are not far from Macedonia, you have Philippi and Thessalonica. So depending on where you are, you can go to these places, Tertullian says, and they still have the original. They have the letter that Paul sent to them into Corinth, let's say. So if you want to go, if you want to read the letter to the Corinthians, just go there. But these, these things were real, and they had, the, they had these letters that and they considered them authentic and um, authoritative. Like, this is what the apostle wrote to us. All right, so they didn't have all the scriptures collected in a book, but they did have um, the apostolic witness. Um, even before they're collected, and they had, you know, so they'd have the letters, and then those letters would be copied and sent on to other churches. But if you, again, you want to go to the, you want to find the original, you go to the city that it was written to. Yeah. Um, so, um, so tradition, 
Remember, tradition are things handed down. Um, scripture, technically, so we use the for the Bible. What does the term scripture simply mean? In, in contrast to the oral tradition, the scripture are writings. So scriptures just mean writings. Script, like writing, yeah. Uh, so, so there's the, which is important, especially as uh, other ideas start making their way around and, and, and floating in. Now, we've talked about some of them when we talked about some of the church fathers and how they, you know, they hinted at this and that. We talked a little bit about Gnosticism, but let's walk through these and try to just get a sense of what these were in the early church. We can't get a full grasp of them, but, but here's a, a, a brief summary of them. So Montanism, Montanism spread from Asia Minor with the claim that it possessed revelation from the Holy Spirit, demanding pure ethical conduct and separation from communities of Christians less pure. So, so that we have talked about this one before. So this is this emphasis on you know, thinking that Jesus is going to come back and we need to really get our, get our uh, morality straight in, in line. And so and when you saw Christians, others who weren't living according to that, they would separate and they would kind of set up their own little thing and say, we're going we're to stay pure, um, pure ethical conduct. And, and, but the problem with it is claiming that it possessed revelation from the Holy Spirit. So, apart from what God was uh, working through the Old Testament and now through the New Testament, they would believe that they would continue to receive revelation uh, from the Holy Spirit, saying that you need to live such and such a, a way. Right? This, is, this is no different than stuff that happens today. Uh, you have uh, those in a more charismatic church where they believe that the Holy Spirit's still talking. And, and who is he going to talk through but for the preacher? And the preacher gets up and he says, I've had a message from the Lord. And from now on, you are to wear, you know, no pants, ladies, only skirts to a certain length, because this is what the Spirit has revealed. I don't, I don't, I'm just making something up. But, you know, they have some guideline for how you're, you are to live your life. And, and in order that we might kind of, um, yeah, remain pure and holy, so that's kind of, it's, it's a very vague, uh, things that, that float around at the time, Montanism. Gnosticism is, is messy too, um, but it's, it's useful for us to get a handle on because it's still around. These ideas are, that's, that's the reason for looking at this stuff. Above all else, these ideas are still around. They don't have the same name anymore, but they're still, it's kind of part of our, our, our life. So Gnosticism, generally, so the idea is that the natural world is evil. The created world, the physical world, the ideal spiritual world is good, right? So they kind of separate this kind of a dualism, body bad, spirit good. That's what dualism is when you split everything up into two, right? And one's evil, one's good. And the, the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. Keep in mind that this, this, this shows up within Christianity. But this is a problem for Christianity because Christianity doesn't teach that. Created material is bad in and of itself. God created a good creation, 
Jesus Christ became a true human being with flesh and blood, with human flesh and blood, yet without sin. If material is bad, Jesus either can't be true man, or it can't be evil, or God's evil, then. So that doesn't work. Um, So in order to reach this, so the ideal world is the spiritual world, and so you got to get there. To reach this ideal world, the soul must be enlightened by a savior sent from the true God to ignite a spark that exists in certain selected individuals by giving them an experience, that's gnosis, a knowledge, of heavenly reality. So certain people would get this little, this, um, this spark of knowledge that they would give kind of a secret, it's kind of a secret club if you got the knowledge and you're one of the one of the special ones to get this. And then you can exceed this mortal physical life and be at one with the divine. Um, Since the physical creation is evil, the Savior cannot be man in any natural sense. So it would attack on, uh, an attack on Jesus being his humanity, also our man, humanity. Um, As a result, you know, if the, if the body the body is evil, the body also then doesn't matter, or it's everything. Um, so one, like it, among Gnostics, you'd kind of see both elements of, a, of like a, a seclusion from the world or giving into it, because the body doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter what you do, just give in to your, your cravings. Or it was kind of an extreme asceticism where you didn't give in to anything, because you're trying to, in holiness, attain to a, a spiritual perfection in your head um, and so then you neglected the body again or you just gave into it says the body doesn't matter so that you can do whatever you want what matters is, is the spiritual um, I'm going to read a couple of sections from this book um, this is a recent book kind of talking about Gnosticism about modern modern remnants of this movement that still exists just to kind of give you a sense of it So he asks, what is, and what is going on? Our culture has embraced an understanding of salvation going back to the mystery cults, one centered not on the validity of truthfulness of a teaching, but on the enthusiastic experience, an experience ranging anywhere from holy barking to benign sensations of personal wellness, but each an experiential happening nonetheless. There's a lot of, a lot of churches that they... they doesn't really matter. It's not based on truth claims of what is true, but on giving you an experience of how you feel about it, and that's the real thing. Um, mentions holy barking that, that actually that has taken place here in the United States where people would be barking up trees um, in the experience, the, the tent revivals, where the preacher would get them so wound up, they'd be so enthused and in the spirit that they could get, they would kind of hypnotize them almost. You would think that, at least, when they're doing crazy stuff with the, the experience of, uh, of, the, of the event was what they relied on. If you had the experience, then you were in the spirit kind of thing. Uh, today's Gnostics likewise always butt up against nature and nature's laws like battering rams, insisting nature should not dictate anyone's place in the world as in the forced argument that femininity, masculinity, and marriage are not natural but social constructs. 
Ever heard arguments like that? Um, and, and them butting up against nature and what is natural. And, um, and they, they, they insist that nature should not dictate anyone's place in the world. Your body should not dictate how you, what, how you identify. You've heard that. The, the distinctions are kind of pushed out with, with Gnosticism. Um, any, kind of, any kind of distinction in order in nature and well, science, we would say, biology. They said that, that can't be a, because the body's evil. See? Well, the mind is the supreme. Uh, it's, it's, it's your, kind of your, your real self is how, is how you are in your mind. Like, and, and we think that, we think that there are new ideas floating around. They're not new ideas. They're just, they're just taken, you know, it's a steps further. And it's the same idea, basically, where you can, you separate who is, the, what is a person, and, and that you're mainly kind of what you think. Your consciousness, your feeling, right? And it has nothing to do with the physical uh, One more. <laughs> the postmodern creed is the hallmark of the adolescent experience. Adolescence itself is something of a modern invention, a creation of the last century as a result of child labor laws and compulsory education. In the leisureness of adolescence, while mom and dad put food on the table, while his state-sponsored schools provide cutting-edge facilities and technology, while the government underwrites his financial security and health care, the American undergoes the great journey of self-discovery or self-actualization. So you're going you to find yourself, find, find your true self. Well, the government is here to help. His science classes and progressive education convince him there's no meaning to the world, at least at a religious level. He's learned to become cynical of his Indian killing, slave trading, and environment destroying, women subjugating country. Being embarrassed about what your, what your forefathers did. Um, what do they call that now? Um, where you have to denounce everyone in the past um, and check your privilege and th that's what that's what this all is um, these ideas come from somewhere uh, meanwhile his church becomes hopelessly outdated something he's growing out of and his parents themselves brought up in the same postmodern creed enable their teens feelings with sentiments like you can't force him to do anything or he'll hate you no parent wants to be the archon that's part of the, the philosophy of the Gnostics um, is, is in order for self-actualization means forgetting everything that you know certainly everything that you were taught from your fathers your parents um, and you just you become your true self it's nothing new under the sun Solomon said that um, I suppose, I suppose the more someone would uh, really study any kind of ancient, like heresy or something like that, as, as you, the more you get into it, the more that you would see like um, indications of it still existing all around you. It's kind of like when you, you know, you go shopping for cars and then, and you, you've been looking at this one particular vehicle and suddenly you see them everywhere on the road. Could be kind of that thing too, but. So that's Gnosticism. Um, the others, the next two, are sometimes versions of Gnostic. They're, they're related. They're not, they, don't, they somewhat overlap, I guess. 
or derived from them. Uh, Docetism. Uh, Docetism comes from the Greek word for it seems to be. And it, it refers to Jesus only seemed to be human. So there it would tie in with Gnosticism where the, the physical is bad. And so Jesus can't really be a human. He can't really be one of us. And so he just seemed to be. Right? Uh, Marcionism. Marcion held that the father of Jesus was not the God of the Old Testament. So, so they read the Old Testament. And you read the Old Testament God as a God of justice and of law, right? Uh, who punishes those who transgress his law and kind of summarize it that way. And so then he only used parts of the Bible he considered in line with his teaching. So, so he just says, well, so I see Jesus in the New Testament. He seems really nice. Uh, he's, he's the, he's, he, that must be the God of love. But the God of the Old Testament is the God of like uh, war and justice and law and, and such. And so he says those must be different. Um, and therefore, then cut out. So the, the Old Testament was out. And any section in the New Testament that seemed to correspond with the Old Testament conception of God, in his mind, those were different. Um, he, he cut out, too. It was Tertullian who, who said that, who called it that. He called it the scissors approach. He accused Marcion of that, uh, of doing that, cutting out the Old Testament parts of New Testament that he found incompatible with his idea of who God should be. You ever heard that before? People saying, well, I couldn't believe in a God who would whatever and fill in the blank. You've heard that before or something like it? I can't believe God would do. What's the, what's the idea? What's the, the essence behind that when someone does that? I, I can't believe in a God who would. Maybe kill somebody or whatever. Well, yeah, whatever it is, right? What is the person doing? They're sitting there saying, well, that God would be evil. I recognize good and evil, and I'm going to call that evil. I'm, I'm a moral creature. God must be a monster. What are you setting yourself up as? As more, a higher good than God. Right? You're saying, well, if God's going to do that, I want to have no part in him. And I'm, you know, I'm better than that. Um, God should be too. And he should, he should fit to my... Now, I, what we need to do is understand the reason why God does what he does. And sometimes what God does seems hard. Um, but we also need to see God, that God can be just. And God can be loving in the same way. Of course, the, the, the resolution of that is going to be in Jesus and in the cross. Where God is both... He, these are not two different gods. We're going to have to pick up uh, with monarchianism uh, next time. Why don't we uh, close up with a shepherd of tender youth? Let's do the uh, one, four, and five like we've done before. Shepherd of tender youth, one, four, and five.